Last Thursday evening, I had just come home from the office, and there was a phone call, a long-distance phone call, awaiting me. The voice on the other end of the line introduced herself as, This is the secretary to President Lee. He and President Tanner would like to speak with you, but they aren't available right now. I'm wondering where you'll be this evening that uh, they might call you back. Well, all of a sudden, everything I was going to do that evening became insignificant. (laughs) And I said, I'll be here. And then for the next uh, 30 longest minutes of my life, I did very many unimportant things trying to keep busy. And the call came... And presently, and President Tanner told me of this assignment from the Lord. And I must apologize to them for not uh, doing my part in carry on the, carrying on the conversation that continued. I, all I was able to say was thank you for a while. And it seems that at times my voice box and tear ducts don't know whose turn it is. <clears throat> But finally, presently said to me, Brother Peterson, we want you to know that we have had a confirmation from the Lord that this is what he would have you do. And it seemed when he said that that I too received that feeling. And it seemed then that even though I didn't know how, and I still don't know how, It seemed then that I knew that everything would work out as the Lord would have it work out. I'm thankful to him for having called a prophet in this day. I'm thankful to him for having called noble men to stand at the prophet's side. I appreciate their confidence. I appreciate the confidence of Bishop Brown, I am thankful that the Lord directed him in the selection of his counselors. I'll do everything that I can to make this an enjoyable and a profitable experience as he works with me. After the phone call, I called in my wife, and I told her what had happened, and we sat and visited a while about how this would affect our our lives, our five daughters, our business, our home that we just bought. (laughs) And then it seemed that almost uh, automatically we knelt together and thanked our Father in Heaven for His confidence and for His love for the things that he's done for us. We thanked him for our children and for their love for their Father in Heaven. And I've thanked him for her, this eternal sweetheart of mine. I've thanked him for allowing her to remain on the earth for another season. 
I thanked him for her faithfulness and all the calls that have come into our home. As I thought since last Thursday evening, <clears throat> I've had many things go through my mind just why and just how this ever happened. And I have thought and remembered back on my boyhood days. And I thanked him for parents who, by very simple means and very common undertakings, instilled in their sons a love for them and a love for their Father in heaven. I remember many times, it seems all like almost every week, that four little tow-headed boys would stand with their faces against the window pane or against the screen door and wave goodbye to their mother and dad as they would get in the car and go to the temple in Mesa. Now, at that age, we didn't know much about the temple. We didn't know much about what went on in the temple. But we had been taught, without any reservation, that our mother and dad loved us, that they would do anything for us. And so, as we sat there and watched them go, we knew that something important must go on in that temple to have these two people who loved us more than anything leave us as often as they did to go there. And we gained an understanding in those tender years of the importance of the temple. While we were growing up for 15 years, our father was a ward clerk. And I remember that uh, every Sunday evening he would bring home this was in the days when the ward clerk did everything, by the way, except what the bishop and his counselor did, but there only was only one ward clerk. And I remember that he had come home after meeting in the evening and go into the dining room. He had pulled the blind, and in front of the oak table he had put the money that he had gathered, the tithes and offerings. And he had counted and account for it and put the ones and the fives and the tens in piles. Then he'd go in and get the ironing board and an iron and a wet rag. And then our dad would take each of these paper dollars and iron them smooth. Now you wonder what would four little boys recognize about this? But well, one thing they got from it was that whatever you do for the Lord, you do the very best that you know how. There's nothing that's too good for the Lord. And so this humble man and his wife, who didn't have much of the world's goods, by some very simple experiences, implanted in their sons a love for the Lord. And it's because of these experiences and others like them that I can stand here this morning and tell you that I know that God lives. And I know that Jesus is the Christ. And I know that this is his church that he organized for the salvation of his children, his people. I know these things are true, and I testify of it in the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, it's always a frightening thing, but a joyous thing to stand before you and proclaim the everlasting gospel and bear witness to the divinity of the church, of the Lord's mission, of the prophet, and of his leaders. We miss terribly Brother Richard Evans, who passed away since our last conference. We have a great stalwart as the twelfth member in the council now, Brother Ashton. We welcome with all our hearts Brother Peterson and Brother Featherstone into the group of general authorities. And it will be a joy to work with them and with Bishop Vandenberg, his counselors, in their new capacities. This is Easter week, a time when we solemnly remind each other of the unprecedented occurrence which took place in a small inner garden in a rough-hewn tomb in a caliche hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. It happened there in the early morning and startled every soul who heard of it. Since it had never happened before on this earth, it must have been difficult for the people to believe. But now could they any longer doubt it when the resurrected Lord himself came to them and showed himself and they felt the wounds in his hands and feet. Hundreds of his intimate believing friends bore witness. This was Jesus of Nazareth, born in a manger, reared in a small village, baptized in the Jordan River, crucified on Golgotha, buried in a stone-cold roomlet in the cliff, and his resurrection attested to in a small, pleasant garden near the tomb. His suffering before and on the cross and his great sacrifice can mean little or nothing to us unless we live his commandments. He says, Why call ye me Lord and do not the things which I say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. Certainly if we fail to leave his live his teachings, we lose communication with him. In South America, we saw an example of broken communication lines. We were riding far out in the northwest of Argentina. It was cattle country. The road was straight and narrow for numerous miles, and on either side was a four-wire barbed fence. In the fence line was a series of poles on which were strung the wires for telephone communication to the world. Upon each telephone pole was a crossbar, and strung from crossbar to crossbar were the communication lines. As we traveled along where the grass had been heavy but now was burned, we found where some of the telephone poles, being in the wake of the fire, were burned off near the ground. Someone had carelessly thrown a lighted cigarette 
from a car window. It had ignited the, ga- the grass. The telephone communications were ended or limited, and communication was down. Nearly all the poles for a distance were scorched or burned. Some had been burned off the first few feet from the ground and were hanging by the top part in the air from the wires which they were intended to support. Dangling in the air, these sagging wires had let them touch the ground, swinging in the wind, each time creating static on the line. The poles had been set to hold up the line but they were sagging. Many a time during the three years that I was in charge of the work in South America, I tried to get through the long-distance calls to these distant places. When the connection was made, almost invariably, there would be static, and the words were cut in two, and grating sounds were heard. In my mind's eye, I could see the telephone line on the Salter Road, swaying in the breeze, hitting the ground occasionally, and breaking connections. I thought that telephone lines and telephone poles were a little like people. They're built for one purpose and sometimes serve another. They're designed to be firm and stout and give support, but in many cases are leaning and swaying and sagging until communications are greatly impaired, if not actually cut off. In my experience, I find that a large number of the marital cases, in those cases, the problem is the lack of communication. The wires are down, the poles are burned, and husbands and wives are jangling, and there's static where there should be peace. There's growing disgust and hate where there should be love and harmony. This typical young couple, only a few hectic years into their eternal marriage, only two children away from the eternal vows they had made in a holy temple of God. They were going each his separate way. Their ideas of life were different as to spiritual matters as well as many others. One wishing to move along almost to what the other thought was fanaticism, and the other moving along in a path which the other spouse thought to be almost apostasy, and both were wrong. They talked about it and lost their tempers and drew farther and farther away from their common goal. But both were good people, basically, but needed unburned telephone poles and untangled wires of communication that were now sagging. Their inability to communicate in reasonableness led to anger, harsh words, misunderstandings. In time, each found another person and set up different communication lines for sympathy and understanding and comfort. And this disloyalty led to physical adventures, which resulted in adulteries and two broken homes and disillusioned spouses and crushed hopes and injured children. And all this because two basically good people let their lines down and permitted the security poles to drag the ground. This is not one couple. It's tens of thousands of couples who started out in a blaze of glory, sweet felicity, and an inner responsibility with the highest of hopes. 
At a distant state conference one Sunday, I was approached after the meeting by a young man whose face was familiar. He identified himself as a returned missionary whom I had met out in the world a few years ago. Said he had not attended the conference, but he came at its conclusion wanting to say hello. Our greetings were pleasant and revived some choice memories. I asked him about himself. He was in college, still single, and fairly miserable. I asked him about his service in the church, and the light in his eyes went out, and a dull, disappointed face fashioned itself as he said, Well, I'm not very active in the church now. I don't feel the same as I used to feel in the mission field. What I used to think was a testimony has become something of a disillusionment. If there is a God, I'm not sure anymore. I must have been mistaken in my zeal and joy. I looked him through and through and asked him some questions. What do you do in your leisure? What do you read? How much do you pray? What activity do you have? What are your associations? The answers were what I expected. He had turned loose of his hold on the iron rod. He associated largely with unbelievers. He read, in addition to his college texts, works by atheists, apostates, and Bible critics. He'd ceased to pray to his Heavenly Father. His communication poles were burned and his lines were sagging terribly. I asked him now, how many times since your mission have you read the New Testament? Not any time, was the answer. How many times have you read the Book of Mormon through? The answer was none. How many chapters of Scripture have you read? How many verses? Not one single time had he opened the sacred books. He'd been reading negative and critical and faith-destroying things and wondered why he could not smile. He never prayed anymore, yet wondered <coughs> why he felt so abandoned and so alone in a tough world. For a long time he had not partaken of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and wondered why his spirit was dead. Not a penny of tithing had he paid and wondered why the windows of heaven seemed closed and locked and barred to him. He was not receiving all the good things that he could have had. And as he was thinking of his woes and his worn-down faith and his loneliness and of his failures, I was thinking of a burned-out pasture in northern Argentina and burned-off telephone posts and sagging wires and of dragging posts. Deeply disturbing are the numerous signs of dwindling faith in our world. Matches are dropped, grass is burned. The sagging in spiritual conviction is frightening. Morale is often low among even employees in their jobs. Selfish gimme tactics. How much can I get? How, how about a raise? More holidays? Fewer hours? Poor morale among the employers. We're too affluent. We have too much money in other things. We have so many things. Even many poorer people have many things, and things become our life. And our vocabulary has been invaded with let me do my thing. Yet the Lord has said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Too often, though, we want the things 
first. We have a great generation of youth, but as I talk to many, I am amazed and surprised at the laxity of prayers among them, especially those who are in sin. Many have nearly ceased to pray. Their communication wires are down. Also, numerous young people in their early married days cease or fail to pray, fail to pray with regularity. Their lines are sagging. My first question to people in trouble is, what about your prayers? How often? How deeply involved are you when you pray? And when you pray, are you humbly thanking or asking? Israel was in deep trouble, a sustained drought. Israel's king Ahab demanded of the prophet Elijah, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that they have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. The spectacular drama portrayed on Mount Carmel between Elijah the prophet and the ineffectual false priests of Baal is the story of sagging lines of communication, great wickedness, and the Lord had sealed the heavens from rain. Elijah had said, if the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. The contest brought about by Elijah was to prove to Israel that the gods of stone and wood and metal were powerless. When the 450 priests of Baal could not influence their gods to burn the offering, and the Lord through Elijah brought down fire from heaven and consumed the bullock, then with a revival of faith on the part of Israel, the clouds came and a torrential rain fell. Weak Israel had now set up new poles. They'd restrung their wires, and communication was beginning to be reestablished. Two young couples from the northwest came bowed in sorrow. <clears throat> the husband of one and the wife of the other <clears throat> had lost themselves in frustration arising out of disloyalty, disloyally finding comfort where no association should have been tolerated. Their problems reached the maximum, and sorrow resulted. It's generally the same. The two young people, unfaithful to their spouses, had conversed and confided too much. Then secret meetings followed, and then disloyal disclosures concerning the spouse of each. And finally, that which could surely not have been dreamed of, the transgressions. Both couples had reduced their activity become casual in their church going. They had joined a social group who were also turning to spiritual casualness like themselves. Their new way of living was beyond their means and debts crowded out tithing. Too busy they were for home evenings and too rushed for family prayer. And when the great temptations came, they were not prepared. Their grass had been consumed and with it the poles had been burned and the dangling charred stubs were hanging to the sagging wires. Sin comes when communication lines are down. It always does, sooner or later. We're living in a sagging world. There's always been sin since Cain yielded to Satan. But perhaps never before has the world accepted sin as completely as a way of life. We shall continue to cry repentance from this and thousands of other pulpits. We shall continue to warn the people all too ready to accept the world 
as it pushes in upon them. May we always repair our sagging lines and fulfill our total obligations, and thus keep close to our Lord and Savior, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have been greatly impressed, my brethren and sisters, at the strength of testimonies that have been born this afternoon and this morning in these conference sessions. I thought the testimony of President Smith was so firm, so strong, so certain. How can anyone doubt? And then to have it followed by Brother Peterson in his masterful way and so sincere, the testimonies of the other brethren, Bishop Featherstone and Bishop Peterson, so humble and, and so certain, a testimony in their lives, and the testimonies of others that have been given. Brother Kimball, always so sweet and so sincere. These are the things that are important to us in our lives. A testimony of the gospel is one of the most valued possession of a member of the Church. The strength and unity of the Church depends upon each member so living that they come to know for themselves that the gospel is true. The spiritual condition of the membership of the Church is determined to a great degree by the lives uh, to a degree to the degree in which they live the gospel and are worthy of the companionship of the Holy Ghost in giving witness of the truth in this great work. It would follow that the prosperity of the Church is also measured to a great extent by the strength of testimonies of its members as demonstrated in, the worth in their worthiness and righteous living. One of the great testimonies of the Scripture is that, that given by Peter as he was brought before the judges after having healed the lame man at the temple gate. Then Peter, filled with the, great, with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deeds done by the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. End quote. A second great testimony was given by Peter of Christ. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he said, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some, of, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, some others, and others, Jeremiah, and are one of the prophets. He said unto them, whom, by, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter asked, answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou, ever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. End quote. In a day when churches are generally losing members and declining in popularity, many wonder what the secret in the growth and stability of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is. President McKay answered this. He said that the secret lies in the testimony possessed by each individual who is faithful in the, in the church, that the gospel consists of correct principles. This testimony has been revealed to every sincere man and woman who has conformed to the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the ordinances, and who has become, in, in list, who has, who become entitled to and received the Spirit of God the Holy Ghost to guide him, end quote. In an editorial in one of the church school magazines by Brother William E. Barrett, he expressed this very well. He said that the uh, great miracle of our day is that spirit which unites the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with those multitudinous authorities appointed to lead them. For those thus appointed to lead speak a diversity of tongues, belong to a variety of races and cultures, and live in many different lands. Yet there is a unity which manifests itself in the obedience to church calls, in the acceptance of basic doctrine, and in the belief that we are led by a living prophet of God. This unity is baffling to the world generally and is not understood by many even whose names grace the church rolls. The inflow, unifying influence is none other then the Holy Ghost bestowed upon men by the authority of God through his holy priesthood. Through the work of the Holy Ghost, men may come to know the truth as it springs forth from the printed pages of scriptures or from the lips of, the living, of our living prophets. In the words of Brigham Young, the eloquence of angels can never convince any person that God lives and makes truth the habitation of his throne independent of that eloquence being clothed with the power of the Holy Ghost. In the absence of this, it would be a combination of useless sounds. What is it that convinces man? It is the influence of the Almighty, enlightening his mind and giving instruction to his understanding. End quote. Every member of the Church is entitled to the companionship of the Holy Ghost. At the time of baptism, hands were placed upon our heads, and it was said, Receive the Holy Ghost based upon our worthiness. This gives us the right to the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost in which we can receive its revelations. The blessings of those who have lived worthy of the companionship of the Holy Ghost were revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and truth to the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all hidden mysteries of my kingdom, from days of old and from ages to come. Will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining unto my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know 
and things to come will I show unto them, even things of many generations. And their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding shall reach to heaven. And before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secret of my will. Yea, even those things which I hath, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man." End quote. And again the Lord told the prophet, And the Spirit giveth light unto every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world, that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. The quorum of the twelve are special witnesses of the Savior. I don't know how many of them have actually seen a personage. They don't talk about it. But they don't have to to receive a special witness that, that can come from the Holy Ghost. Brother President Harold B. Lee said to a group of young people on one occasion, not many have seen the Savior face to face here in mortality, but there is not one of you who has, not, who has been blessed by the gift of the Holy Ghost after baptism but that may have a perfect assurance of his existence as though you had seen him. The impact of the witness of the Spirit in our lives is made clear unto us uh, by President Joseph Fielding Smith when he said, The Lord has taught that there is a stronger witness than even a personage, even the Son of God in a vision. Uh, the Savior said, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy against the, uh, shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in the world to come. Therefore the seeing even the Savior does not uh, leave as deep an impression in the, in the mind as does the testimony of the Holy Ghost to the Spirit. Both Peter and Paul understood this. Here are the words of Paul. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were partakers of the Holy Ghost to have tasted the good word of God and the power of God to come if they have fallen away to renew them again into repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And President Smith concludes, the impression on the soul that comes from the Holy Ghost are far more significant than a vision. It is where spirit speaks to spirit, and the imprint upon the soul is far more difficult to erase. Every member of the Church should have the impression on his soul made by the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Son of God, indelibly pictured so that they can't, it cannot be forgotten." End quote. In our search for truth and in our pursuit of eternal life, the Lord has not left us without guidance. He said to Oliver Cowdery, I say unto you that assuredly as the Lord liveth, who is your God and your Redeemer, even so surely, surely uh, you shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever thing you shall ask in faith faith, which uh, with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive. Yea, behold, I tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. 
Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. And again he said, And the spirit giveth light unto every man that cometh into the world. And the spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit. We need the companionship of the spirit in our lives to continue con continually confirm to us the divinity of the, of the gospel plan. Two things are vital in the assurance of the companionship of the Spirit. First, our lives must be in conformity to gospel standards. The Spirit of the Lord does not, always, does not dwell in unholy temp uh, temples. And two, we must be engaged in the work. As the Pharisees listened to the bold teachings of the Savior, they said, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? He answered them, If any man will do the will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The Lord plainly told the prophet Joseph Smith how one might obtain a witness of him. He said, Verily, thus saith the Lord, It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my faith and know that I am, and that I am the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Too often we ask the Lord for direction of, the spirit, of his spirit before we've done all that we can. The Lord gave Oliver Cowdery the key to this when he attempted to translate it and failed. He said, But behold, I say unto you, you must study it out in your mind. You must ask me if it is right, and if it is right, I will cause your bosom to burn within you. Therefore, ye shall feel that it is right. After we have done all that we can, having studied it out in our mind to determine how best to solve our problems, then take our decisions to the Lord. And if they are right, our bosom will burn within us, and we will have a spiritual confirmation as to what to do. The prophet Alma spoke regarding his testimony of certain gospel teachings, he said, And this is not all. Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof they, I have spoken are true. And how do you suppose that I know uh, of their surety? Behold, I say unto you that they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things for myself. And now I do know for myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made, ma made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. Yes, the spirit enlighteneth every man that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit. I bear testimony that by the witness of the spirit can one come to know of the divinity of this great work, that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that Joseph Smith was divinely called, and that President Joseph Fielding Smith is a prophet of God, that this gospel is the great plan of life and salvation as instituted of the Lord. This is my personal testimony to you, my brethren and sisters, and I leave it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
It was most fitting, my brothers and sisters, that we sing the glorious hymn that we have just sung, because we have just listened to the voice of the prophet of God. He has spoken as the divinely appointed mouthpiece of the Lord here on earth. The Latter-day Saints revere him. They accept his word as coming by inspiration and revelation for their guidance in these troubled times. People who are not members of this Church may not sense the great significance attached to his ministry. Even some Latter-day Saints have not yet discovered it. But the President of the Church is, in fact, a prophet raised up in these last days to give inspired guidance not only to Latter-day Saints but to all mankind everywhere. The Almighty has said of him and the other prophets of this Church, They shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord and the power of God unto salvation. President Smith is a prophet in the same sense as were Moses and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Paul and Peter, and others who ministered anciently. Every faithful person will agree that there were prophets in Israel during Old Testament times. Prophets also are a part of the Church as established by the Savior in His day. They, too, were like Moses and Isaiah, but they were even more. They were Christian prophets, chosen by the Lord for the Christian ministry to properly teach the saints and to protect them from false doctrines which could lead them astray. Few modern people, whether Jewish or Christian, realize that there are living prophets on earth today, men who hold the same gifts and powers that characterized the prophets of old. But they are here, alive and alert. They are modern men, well-educated and fully oriented to present-day conditions. They give the word of God as it is received now, just as Moses and Isaiah, Peter and Paul ministered in their day. Try to realize it if you will. God does speak to us now. He manifests himself through prophets whom he has raised up for this day, for 1972, for present-day people to help them to successfully combat the seductions of a decadent and blinded world. Every one of you may have the full benefit of his heavenly guidance if you will but accept it. You can know God's will pertaining to your own self, given now, not two thousand years ago, but here and now. Did not Moses minister to the particular needs of his people? Did not Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel do likewise? Did not Peter and Paul give answers to the immediate problems of their day, tailored to fit the conditions which faced their own neighbors and friends? Similar blessings are available now to all who will hear. They may be obtained through today's prophet 
with today's revelation to solve today's problems. In this time of great wickedness, the Almighty is making a dramatic effort to save mankind before destruction comes upon the world. And he is doing so by giving a great new revelation of himself. He has appeared to modern mortal men who have seen his face and heard his voice. No more is he an absentee God. No longer is he isolated from us. In the time in which we ourselves live, he has shown himself to be a divine reality, physical as well as spiritual. By showing himself literally to modern men, he has removed all doubt as to his existence. He lives as does his divine begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Both have made themselves known by a great new revelation in our day. Is that hard to believe? Do you doubt it? Does it seem incredible to you that God would appear to modern men? He certainly revealed himself anciently. If he is unchangeable, as the scriptures say, should not he do as much for modern people as he did for the ancients? Throughout Bible times he made himself known, especially when his people began to drift astray did he manifest himself in power to bring them back to the fold. This he did through new prophets whom he raised up from time to time and to whom he gave new revelations which revitalized and added and gave added meaning to the divine word previously given. After long centuries of laboring through his prophets, he then sent his own beloved Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. To accomplish his purposes, the Lord founded his church and taught his gospel, and for a time many followed it. But since then, Mankind again has drifted from his precepts and neglected his commandments, hence the condition of the world today. But because he loves modern people as he did those, ancient, those of ancient times, the Lord is now making a final effort to save us. This he does by precisely the same means that he used anciently, that is, by giving new revelation and raising up new prophets through whom he speaks to mankind. You may say that you have been taught that the Almighty no longer reveals himself, that no more revelation is needed, and that the Bible is sufficient. It is admitted that for centuries revelation did stop. There were no more apostles and prophets on the earth. This is only too true and is most regrettable. But the flow of revelation stopped only for the same reason that it ceased occasionally in Old Testament times. Isaiah explained it in this way. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. However, in spite of wickedness, the scripture says that in the latter days there would come this new revelation of which we speak. Angels also were to visit the earth once more, giving divine direction to wandering mankind. 
Is that hard to believe? Not if you accept the Bible. We Latter-day Saints announce that this new light has come. God has given a great new revelation. He has raised up new apostles and prophets to labor among the nations, even as did Peter and Paul. We are those apostles and prophets. We are his divinely called representatives for today. But many will say that this cannot be. It has come to pass nevertheless. It is an accomplished fact, and it is in direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Some may say that God would never appear to a small sect hidden away in the Rocky Mountains. Others might say that the Latter-day Saints have peculiar religious ideas which need not be taken seriously. But we are not a small group isolated in the Rocky Mountains. We are now worldwide, larger than many well-known denominations of Christendom, and steadily growing. Neither are we religious extremists with peculiar ideas. We are realists. Do you suppose for one moment that religious malcontents could do what the Latter-day Saints have done in the world? Our people are substantial citizens, law-abiding, intelligent, and progressive, as all who really know us will agree. We rate high in education, believing as we do that the glory of both God and man is intelligence. We have produced great scientists and inventors, for example. Do you know that the television set through which you are now receiving this program came as a result of the inventive genius of a Mormon scientist, Dr. Philo Farnsworth? You enjoy music on your stereo. Do you know that stereophonic sound came to you through the research of another Mormon scientist, Dr. Harvey Fletcher? Some of the leaders in the United States space program have been members of this church. One of the astronauts now training is a Latter-day Saint. One of the men who reached the moon on America's most recent expedition was a graduate of a Salt Lake City school. Latter-day Saint men have received cabinet rank in the U.S. government. Some have held high positions in other lands as well. Latter-day Saint men have presided over some of the largest worldwide organizations of civic clubs, one of them being Lions International. A Mormon apostle was world president of Rotary International and was highly respected by its members everywhere. Latter-day Saint culture is well known. Our music, as provided by various groups, is heard in many nations. Our Salt Lake Tabernacle Choir sings to millions every week at home and abroad. Some of our men have presided over important financial and business organizations, such as the American Bankers Association and the National Association of Manufacturers. A number from various states have served in the U.S. Congress and still continue to do so. Some of our men hold high-ranking commissions in the military services. Recently, I sat at dinner with three of them, two brigadier generals and one major general, all faithful Latter-day Saints. The Air National Guard recently conferred upon the president of our church the title of honorary brigadier general. And speaking of the liberation of women, be it known that Mormon women were among the first of all women everywhere and anywhere to receive the franchise to vote.
This was conferred on them in the days of Brigham Young 102 years ago. One organization of our women numbers nearly a half million. It is devoted to improving the status of women and children and operates in 63 nations of the world. Its president, Mrs. Bell S. Spafford, recently served as president of the National Council of Women of the United States. She also represented America as a delegate to the World Council of Women, in which council she also occupies a prominent position. We have still another organization for younger women and teenage girls, which has a membership of some 400,000 devoted to the betterment of girls of that age. Its president, Mrs. Florence S. Jacobson, has served also as a United States delegate to meetings of the World Council of Women. Our men and women have taken active part in the White House Conference for the Betterment of Children and are still engaged in that work. Latter-day Saints are among the leaders of the Boy Scout movement internationally. It was a Mormon Eagle Scout who represented the six million Scouts of the United States a few weeks ago in presenting to President Nixon the membership card showing him to be the honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America for 1972. Could religious extremism produce a series of results like these? In no sense are our men and women carried away with emotionalism. They are practical, down-to-earth, well-balanced, people of sound judgment. But it is out of the depth of this great integrity that we solemnly declare that God has given a new revelation of himself in modern times and that we are the custodians of that message. The original gospel of Christ has been restored to earth in its pristine purity. It is here now. Divine authority to administer it has likewise been restored from heaven in our day. This restored gospel can stop crime and delinquency among both parents and children. It can put an end to immorality, debauchery, and drunkenness. It can stop divorce and the collapse of the home. It can cure all of the ills which now afflict us if we will but live according to its teachings. Every part of the gospel is practical. It produces positive results. It is past time to become realistic about our world condition and to recognize that only through a return to God and his recently restored gospel can we ever achieve world happiness and peace. We testify that God lives, that we are his servants, duly appointed by divine power, and that we are commissioned of heaven to preach his revealed word to all mankind by the power of modern prophecy. We appeal to you. Do not let prejudice blind you to the truth. Open your hearts to this new revelation from God. Study it and learn to live by its principles. We testify to you that it is indeed the way of life and salvation brought back to earth by God himself and by repeated angelic ministrations. And we bear you this testimony in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.